meditate on your gift. Your gift that gave us salvation and life that found us uh, in the dark and brought us into your kingdom. So thank you, Lord. We turn to you now to look at that, to go deeper into that, to remind ourselves, to refresh our understanding of what you've done, to look forward in hope of what you've accomplished through that gift. And so I pray that you'd help us do that with these hours. I pray that you would help us even transform uh, or change the way we look at these, this wonderful season. Um, only you can change our hearts to do that. And so we turn this all over to you. In Jesus' name, amen. What well, we are looking at Luke 1 uh, to continue our walk through the Advent narrative, uh, namely, to better understand the gift that has been given and the miraculous way through which it came and to see again and refresh us on the sovereignty or the absolute power and authority of God uh, that cannot be stopped or thwarted to bring us His good things, or namely the good thing. And hopefully to reorient um, our views on Christmas and Advent. And maybe we say that every year and we have good intentions, but We'll discuss more of that towards the end about what I mean by that. But here this morning we look at John the Baptist foretold who is preparing the way. And I focus in on that idea of what John is doing in preparing the way because it, it carries a lot more significance than just kind of, as it's been said, rolling out a sort of red carpet for Jesus to come. There's a work that John is doing there's a work that John has been created and ordained to do uh, before he's even born that is to make us aware of a need. Make us aware of the fact that the one who is coming, the Lord, is our greatest need. And there's a, there's a couple reasons or a couple ways in which John does this in his ministry as he grows into a man. But John the Baptist is that light, is that voice in the wilderness we read this morning that is making us aware that our greatest need is going to be fulfilled. So he becomes the, the first herald of Christmas, so to speak. He becomes the one who lets us know that that gift is for us and the significance of it. He also kind of breaks a 400-year silence of prophecy from our Lord. I remember one of the first tests I took in seminary had this question on it. What do you call the 400 years between the Old and New Testament or between the last prophecy in Malachi and the beginning of the New Testament or New Covenant? And I had no clue, uh, as I did on most of that test, but somehow I still got a B. And the term is intertestamental period. You don't need to remember that. You can simply just say it's the 400 years between the testaments. But it's significant 
because in no other point, I believe, in, in the history of men or God's people do you have such a period after such a long time of prophecy that was building on itself, that was continuing this thread of God's plan for salvation and this new covenant that's to come. And then all of a sudden with Malachi, who announces a, a messenger to go before the Lord and then the Lord to come, it just shuts off. And so you have kind of an anticipation built even over those centuries of, okay, Malachi told us these guys are coming. It's been 50 years since he said that. It's been 100 years. It's been 300 years. And now it's been 400 years. Is there any significance with the, with the number 400? I don't believe so. But there is a significance that this hope has to remain alive for these 400 years. And the only way that hope can remain alive is if people remain aware of their need. And so you have what Galatians calls about the law, a guardian who is given to us to serve us during that period of time to until we reached this, this Messiah, until we reached what we really needed. That, that guardian over that law made us aware of that need or should make us aware by pointing us to uh, a characterization of righteousness that cannot be fulfilled in men or by men. So Israel is supposed to continually read and be taught the law to recognize that that Savior that's prophesied they are desperately in need of. They're supposed to follow their father Abraham, who recognizes that God himself will provide a lamb of sacrifice. They're supposed to look forward in faith, in believing that God will save his people, that God will indeed even provide their righteousness. And so there is a desperation that the people must remain in these 400 years. And as hopefully now many in this room have recognized that that need has been fulfilled or that Savior has come, I hope we again recognize that, that Christmas or Advent is that time which we again find ourselves awestruck that that greatest impossible need that must be filled has been met and we rejoice we worship and in fact we look forward to another coming because christmas wasn't it as far as his arrival in the presence of men it was the beginning but now we look at john on john who is going to come and break the silence. Malachi 3.1, it's prophesied of John and of the Lord. Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple, and the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. And that's about the last we hear for 400 years of what is to come. But I'm focusing in on this phrase of being prepared. It's a phrase we see 
not only here with what John is doing in the New Testament in his ministry, but we see here in Malachi, and then we see also in Isaiah 40. And it means to become ready for action and use in progress, made suitable, suitable for a specific purpose. We read already Isaiah 40, verse 3, this morning a voice, voice cries, In the wilderness prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. There is a sense also in the context of this word that it means also to clear the way of any obstruction. Therefore, what is it that would be obstructing the way of the Lord? Or what is it that needs to be cleared that we would be able to um, be ready for His arrival? So the sense of preparation is is what John's ministry is doing, making us aware of a need by clearing away certain things so we can see that need. So what are those things that need to be cleared? Well, number one, I believe prideful, unbelieving hearts are the number one obstruction to receiving God's gift. This happens because men are um, like Adam and are by nature children of wrath we have hearts that the bible tells us don't seek god don't desire god don't want god actively turn away from god the people prepared have to be those who know their need for a savior and we have made christmas or advent a time of want and it's actually best viewed as a time of need we most need a savior if we're honest people with that desperate need are those prepared to receive a savior we most need him to come and dwell with us by his grace and mercy we most need to hear and understand his word and instruction and revelation for life and godliness therefore john preaches repentance for the forgiveness of sins as he prepares the way right that's the first thing we hear about his ministry is that he is preaching this repentance, that he is baptizing for repentance, that he is making clear that we are in need. And it, isn't that amazing that people are drawn to him in the wilderness to hear that message? Who wants to hear that? By our own prideful, sinful hearts, we don't want to know we're in need, right? I'll never forget that immediate stark contrast I saw when I was uh, converted and given a new heart and my friends were so scared of that because it presented to them that they are actually in need of rebirth, actually in need of a Savior who is gracious and loving and benevolent and rich in those things to forgive a sinner who is condemned to be separated from God forever. It's a reality that people don't want to confront, and yet they are drawn out to John to hear it and to acknowledge it through his baptism. That is only, only a work of the Lord. That is only a work of the Holy Spirit. I can tell you all day that you're a sinner, and it matters not a, a little unless the Holy Spirit is preaching that same thing to your heart and to your mind. 
And this is exactly what John's ministry is about. And so that's what he preaches. Second, John is clearing the way of bad teaching. The religious elite had so misunderstood and muddied the waters of God's revelation and promise and character of mercy and grace. They made the way crooked and full of debris with their extra biblical traditions and additions to the law. They had perverted the promise of a new covenant, one founded in the mercy and grace of Yahweh who bears with and forgives all manner of sinners and makes them a people for his own possession. Therefore, John reacts strongly when the Pharisees show up in the wilderness. So you can see that in Matthew, specifically when he points them out in chapter 3, verse 7. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. So John recognizes that Israel is unaware of these things because they have not been taught these things. They have not been shown these things. They have not had a ministry in front of them that proclaimed their neediness for the Savior who's promised to take away their reproach and their transgressions according to Isaiah 53. And so he's a little bit upset about that. So you've got to clear that out of the way. How? With truth, right? With, with bearing witness to the truth. John is announcing the arrival of the Lord who will inaugurate a new kingdom through a new covenant made in his blood. One which the Lord bestows mercy and grace to those who need it. Now, everyone needs it, but who knows they need it? Who values or desires the Lord above all else? Can this season be a test for your heart and soul that you may discover what is your value and what you're thankful for? Most experience happiness at Christmas if they can fulfill their desire for things and even places. But what kind of joy might we experience at Christmas if Christ be all our hope and desire, if we are at perfect peace because our trust is in Him? What if Christmas was purely a season of hope and reflection on His gift in Christ, a dedicated focus on worship and communion with our Lord who sacrificially gave that we might have Him who is our life? Could we use this season to slow down from all the different directions we go and all the different things we do so that we might sit at his feet to hear the story once again of how he came to save? What if Christmas became, became a kingdom event and not a worldly event? I am confronted with that always. How to make Christmas better. And I don't know if it's a matter of making Christmas better I think it's just a matter of redeeming Christmas for its original purpose of celebrating Christ and remembering his promises to come again. I think it's a, it's a reminder 
like I said, to sit at his feet to hear the story once again that our zeal for the gospel and our confidence in the gospel would be bolstered. I think, again, it's a time to approach the end of our calendar year and to stop and instead of uh, going the direction of the world that tells us to go here and there and do this and that at this point in time, that we stop, slow down, clear calendars, and look at him. Maybe that's how we make Christmas better or redeem Christmas. And I'm not advocating that you dispense with all the trappings and traditions of, of your Christmas. But I am saying we need to look through this lens of thankfulness and of hope and of a realization that this is about him and it's not about us and we need to put all of our traditions and all of our things that we do through that some of them may remain but some of them may have to go and as i've preached to you before are we always a reforming people making changes not for change sake but to be that holy people that God is making us, following His will and keeping with His word so that we can truly be called a people of His way. Now let's look at Zechariah and Elizabeth. Because Luke 1, 5 through 25 is about what has namely taken place in their life that's going to be expanded to the lives of the world. We read about them in verse 5 and 6 that Zechariah is of the division of Abijah, a priestly division of the Levites, and that his wife is from the daughter of Aaron, right? Which Aaron is the head of all the priestly um, groups, the Levites. Her name's Elizabeth. And verse 6 says, They were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. Verse 7, But they had no child because Elizabeth was barren, and both were advanced in years. So what we know about Zechariah and Elizabeth is that they both come from priestly families. They had a fear of the Lord. Their conduct was blameless. Now that doesn't mean that they were perfect. That doesn't mean they didn't have a need of a Savior. But it does mean that they followed the law righteously. It, it does mean that their conduct was probably really obscure and foreign to anything we've ever seen. It also indicates that that's not a reason for her barrenness, which is always assumed of barren women in this time and in this place. Oh, something's wrong with them, or they have a curse upon them from God. Well, Luke, in, in compiling his account and making these things known to us, is making sure to get that out of the way so that we can see that her barrenness is for the glory of the Lord. It's not because they were unrighteous people. Remember John chapter 9, 1 through 3? Jesus and his disciples encountered this blind man. Verse 1, as he passed by, he saw a man blind from birth, and his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned? This man or his parents that he was born blind. Jesus answered, it was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. You see how important it is? A lot of times we chalk up suffering either in our lives and or other people's lives to the fact that they have brought some sort of curse upon them. 
Instead, we, we fail to recognize that the complete power and authority of God over all things at all times means that he can take an imperfect world and imperfect things and use them for his glory so that imperfections and infirmities might serve to even bring praise to the king when all we think they're useful for is to bring depression and heartache. And it should that be a comfort for us that these things which fall on us are, are used for that purpose. And when we get into that presence of glory, we won't bemoan the fact that we had to suffer for that glory. Paul says it won't even be worth comparing to it. We may even look back on our lives and say, I didn't do enough suffering. I didn't see enough of the goodness of God in the, in the hard things of this life that can be used in such a monumental, majestic way to bring Him glory and to show me more of His goodness. And we hesitate to say that because we don't want it to come into our lives and bring us pain. Well, I'm not saying you invite suffering or invite these infirmities into your life. But I am saying that faith in God recognizes that all things work together for good. To those who love God and are called according to his purpose. And what we read about Zechariah and Elizabeth is that they loved God. They feared God. And they were called according to his purpose. And so that, that stigma that had been placed on her for all those years is, is finally going to give way to this amazing, glorious miracle that is going to be celebrated for all time. You think she saw it like that while she was in the midst of it? But in retrospect, was it worth it? Of course, we just don't have that kind of hindsight vision in the present. Also, they're older, and I like, I like how um, respectfully they put it in the Bible in verse 7, advanced in years. That's nice. So the deck's stacked against them. I mean, that's, that's what Luke has set us up to understand. She's been barren for years. So how's this going to work? But God ordained it to be such, right? And we see that in this, with God, all things are possible. And that his power is made perfect in our weakness. So here's how it comes to Zechariah, verse 8. Now, while he was serving as a priest before God, when his division was on duty, according to the custom of the priesthood, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. Chosen by lot is simply a, a means that they use to recognize that God exists in complete authority over the affairs and directions of all things at all times for his glory. And this was a way to trust the Lord in picking any of the qualified persons without human bias. So it's not like the lot falls to anybody who gathered around to place their name on a number. It was like, okay, we have the division of Abijah. They're the, they're the priestly division that's going to serve at this point in time this year. But 
we don't have a, a system for picking the guy in that division except by lot. And I like lots in the Bible because it does that very thing. It, it's not a gamble or a, or a chance. It's a recognition of sovereignty that God can make the decision far better than we can. And in fact, it's about God's decision and not ours. So Zechariah, Lot falls to him, not by chance, but because God wanted him in there. Okay. Also, all of this, this custom of the priesthood and everything comes from 1 Chronicles 24. You see this, that, that you see Abijah's division listed in there among the divisions of the Levites who are going to serve in the temple. And in 1 Chronicles 24, 19, uh, it says that these had as their appointed duty in their service to come into the house of the Lord according to the procedure established for them by Aaron, their father, as the Lord God of Israel had commanded them. So they're continuing on the Levitical priesthood traditions and God is working through that and above that and in that to bring about his purposes. Then the angel comes to them. He, Zechariah goes in to burn the incense in verse 11. Uh, the people are outside praying, by the way. Okay, This is a really holy moment. Zechariah goes in, verse 11, and there appeared to him an angel of the Lord standing on the right side of the altar of incense. And Zechariah was troubled when he saw him, and fear fell upon him. But the angel said to him, do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John. And you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth, for he will be great before the Lord, and he must not drink wine or strong drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit, even from his mother's womb. So the prayer's heard. You can tell that this is a prayer that they had uttered for years and maybe have never even stopped praying for, even though they're advanced in years. They want a son. They want a son all the while God's bringing a messenger. In other words, this is a, a, maybe a, a parenting revelation for us. His purpose, purposes for our children supersedes our desires for our children. His purposes for John begin even in the womb we read in verse 15. So we, we want children, or a lot of us, um, and the Lord may be pleased to give us children. And we have ideas of what we can do with them and what we can teach them and what they may be. Even as we see their, their personalities and their strengths and their weaknesses come out, we say, oh, this child would be a really good this or a really good that. But it so is that God's purposes for them supersede our desires for them in other words we're not called to uh, push upon them the desires for them to be a specific thing or person we are to direct them to the lord to be used for him you need to know him and you need to ask him i have an idea of what you might be but it might be wrong and it might not be his purposes i have an idea of maybe what the Lord is using you for, but it's His purposes, His will. So talk to Him. Seek Him. And if you're not going to seek Him, I can't help you. I don't know what to tell you. 
He's the one who directs life for eternal purposes. So that's what they want. This is what God wants. And they're, they're intersecting here in this beautiful, awesome way. That's why they're going to have this great joy and gladness, right? And, and he, he even gives them something else. Like Many are going to rejoice at his birth. Like it's going to be a, a big deal. Now, what's their response? Well, back up here. Let me see this for a second. Verse 15. He's filled with the Holy Spirit even from his mother's womb. And we read that in the Christmas story, right? When Mary goes to visit Elizabeth, uh, John is like reacting in her womb. And you mothers know what that, that is. You know that feeling. But they understand that it's different than just like movement. It's, it's a response to the king. It's a response to the Savior. It's a, it's a, it's a spiritual happening that is working itself out in the physical so apparently John is regenerate or saved or, or, or given that Holy Spirit before he utters a word, before he comes out into fresh air. It's amazing. It's God's purpose. And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. And he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. There it is. That's what he's doing. That's what we've already discussed. But looking at the response as we move forward here. Zechariah said to the angel, verse 18, How shall I know this? For I am an old man and my wife is advanced in years. Zechariah wants a sign, in other words, which is ironic because the angel of the Lord is standing before him, namely as a sign, describing what the sign is. Your barren, older wife will be pregnant. There's, there's no other sign, right? What, what else is there supposed to be? So Gabriel uh, gives him his cv so to speak his resume so verse 19 and the angel answered him i am gabriel i stand in the presence of god and i was sent to speak to you to bring you this good news <laughs> in other words zechariah you're in the temple of the lord okay know your context second of all i'm not a normal being am i you fear fell upon you because there's an angel before and then, and then the angel says these things, which will actually be physical happenings or signs. So the fact that Zechariah is asking for a sign is crazy. And maybe he was just beside himself. Okay, let's give him a little break. Maybe he just didn't know what to say, right? Wasn't as holy as that teenager Mary, even though he's a priest. So therefore, he is disciplined, right? Verse 20, behold, you will be silent and unable to speak until the day that these things take place because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their time. But Elizabeth has a response. 
and the people were waiting for Zechariah, and they were wondering at his delay in the temple. When he came out, he was unable to speak to them, and they realized that he had seen a vision in the temple, and he kept making signs to them and remained mute. And when his time of service was ended, he went to his home. After these days, his wife Elizabeth conceived, and for five months she kept herself hidden, saying, Thus the Lord has done for me in the days when he looked on me to take away my reproach among people. Now, I don't really understand why she kept herself hidden for five months. We can bring conjecture. We can suppose certain things. But she kept herself hidden for whatever reason. Maybe she was kind of embarrassed. I don't know. But we can assume things and we can be wrong. But nonetheless, Zechariah cannot speak. And that usually... Also with it carries the fact that he may be deaf. So he can't hear or speak these crazy things that he's just seen. Okay, He could write them, I assume. But Elizabeth rejoices. And her rejoicing, uh, I don't know the best way to put it, but it's, it's a small form of rejoicing. And, and here's why. She's rejoicing, and I quote, that he took away my reproach among people. Okay, so she's glad that people aren't going to look down on her anymore, which is fine. Who wants to be looked down upon? I mean, for the sake of Christ, we're supposed to accept that and even rejoice in that to a degree that it means that our names are written in heaven. But it's a... If that brings her the greatest joy, then it's small. Because it's temporary. It's temporary. As long as men live or as long as she knows certain people, uh, that's all she gets out of it. So it leaves you with, well, what, what about her reproach before God? Because that's what John is proclaiming. That's what John's helping people to be prepared for. So that's really where this should lead her. But in the, in the moment and in time, she's just seeing that that stigma of barrenness is removed. And so no longer are gonna, people are going to look at her as someone with a curse. They're going to look at her as esteemed. Right? Because they can point back to, to uh, uh, Abraham and Sarah. And now, now they're like them. That's sort of a prideful response. Now, the birth of John will bring them gladness and joy for their current lives. Their current lives. They get to enjoy a child. They get the, the burden of barrenness removed. But they're, they're going to need another baby to come and take away their greatest reproach, their greatest condemnation, their greatest curse. And that is being a condemned sinner before a holy God. John's not the one to do that. John is the gift celebrated for a time, but Jesus is the gift celebrated for all time, both now and forever. And, and John knows this, right? Think back to his ministry. One of the great 316s of the Bible, Luke 316, John answered them all, saying, I baptize you with water. But he who is mightier than I is coming. The strap of those whose sandals I am not worthy to untie, he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. 
The ministry of John the Baptist is much um, in, in content the same as the ministry that you and I still continue to this day. We, we are making known to people that you need to look past us or through us to someone else. We need, to, we need to preach that to our children. Like, look, yeah, respect me, mother, father, love me as mother, father. But you're supposed to look through me to someone else. We are to do that with one another. We, we hold each other in high esteem for the things we see in each other. But we're, we're, we're trying to get you past me, past you to Jesus. That, that, that it's your need. He's your life. He's your hope. He's your joy. He is your peace. He is the only one who reconciles relationship with God that if it's not reconciled, right, leaves you in a desperate, hopeless state of condemnation both now and forever. But as he becomes that greatest gift in your life, he becomes that celebrated and cherished gift both now and forever. So Christmas after Christmas can come and we can grow in our gladness and our joy because we get to know him more every Christmas and the following year that that represents or previous year that that represents. We, we every Christmas then have opportunity or we should take opportunity to point our souls and the souls of our loved ones deeper into that cherished gift of Christ who will be worshipped now and forever. That if they are singing His praises as the Lamb who was slain in heaven as they uh, fly around Him with these great awesome creatures and as they stand at His feet before the sea of glass and as they see the scars on His hand but yet see Him standing as a Lamb who was slain they worship him without end, and so we uh, dive into that further every opportunity we have. And so Christmas becomes a moment in which we capture opportunity to do that. Maybe that sounds boring to what you're used to for Christmas. But I would argue that would only be because you don't know him very well yet. But as you press into these things in the scriptures that are revealed for us that tell us about his glory and his beauty and his majesty and the, and the crazy awesome way that he came to us with that mercy and that way that we, he lowered and debased himself to walk in the dirt and to wear sandals and to wash people's feet and to spit in the mud and cure the blind people, he is, he is worth our constant and unending meditation that leads us to worship and praise that prepares us for His second coming in which you will receive Him with an unending joy which you will join Him in an unending relationship consummated by a supper by a celebration that none of your Christmases put together can match. So my hope is to point
point us or nudge us further in this direction. Because everything else, no matter how great it is, no matter how good it is, cannot match what we're looking at here in Jesus. So I just say this to you. May you have good cheer this season and all good things. Right? I want, I want us to enjoy everything good that comes to us. But may you find that your heart is most endeavored to see and savor the beauty, glory, and majesty of our God. Respond to him now and then we'll stand and sing.